Welcome to today's Hemp Barons podcast, everyone. I'm host Joy Beckerman, and I'm very proud and honored today to be bringing a, the first of our three-part series here on the 1961 Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs with Michael Kravitz and Kenzie Reboulet. We're talking about two internationally renowned cannabis activists, cannabis in all of its forms, and the true sort of silver bullet here of cannabis prohibition globally. Uh, you're going to learn all about Michael and Kenzie through this three-part series. It's very important. This is why we did not cut a bunch of material out of these complex but absolutely critical facts of law and policy affecting some 185 nations uh, who are a part of the United Nations treaties or drug control system. Additionally, uh, Kevin and Kenzie and Hannah, a bunch of incredible international activists so dedicated at the United Nations and World Health Organization level, um, have written a book, Cannabis and Sustainable Development, Paving the Way for the Next Decade in Cannabis and Hemp Policy. Understand that just as we uh, lobby or advocate in our own city council or county council or state legislature and U.S. Congress, the same is true at the United Nations level. And these are folks who tirelessly travel to Vienna and to Sweden and occasionally to the U.N. in New York. These particular meetings don't necessarily or very often take place in the United States. Um, to advocate for sensible policy on cannabis in all of its forms, and in particularly uh, the human rights, social rights, and environmental aspects of liberating this important plant. This book, Can Cannabis and Sustainable Development, uh, has been given multiple copies, uh, have been given to leaders to educate them at the uh, World Health Organization and UN level. Um, it's originally 120 pages. Ages. Uh, they are making a toolkit, the 2020 Sustainable Cannabis Policy Toolkit. That's an extended summary version in English and French. And they are raising funds to help with the printing, with the translation. Um, and with just managing the whole publication of this toolkit. Uh, and that's at GoFundMe. So if you go to GoFundMe.com and you type in Cannabis Sustainability Report, the one for Barcelona, Kenzie visits with us from Barcelona, pops up, please uh, donate to this very, very important educational tool. We are getting there, folks. We are, uh, thanks to these incredibly dedicated international activists from all over the world, uh, we are continuing to make tremendous progress at the World Health Organization UN level, um, and we need to, of course, extricate ourselves and from the 1961 uh, United Nations Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs and the other treaties that, uh, that comprise it. And most importantly, uh, we need to understand the intent of those treaties, how they should be interpreted and implemented in each of the countries who are signatories to uh, this important and drug controlling treaty. So welcome again, and thank you for staying tuned in to part one of this very important three-part series. And we'll see you again here next week for part two. Until then, stay healthy, stay safe, and register to vote. Fill in the census. Michael and Kenzie, thank you so much for being with us on Hemp Barons today. 
Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank well, you. all of our guests at Hemp Barons are very special. We have today two incredibly special, internationally renowned guests, Michael Kravitz and Kenzie Zamuli. Kenzie uh, joins us from Barcelona. He is an internationally renowned independent advocate uh, for cannabis and controlled substances and sustainability uh, throughout the planet. And Michael is a renowned international cannabis activist, human rights defender, a military veteran. Thank you for your service, Michael. A board member of DRCNet, Origin Council, uh, Origins Council and so many other organizations that both of these gentlemen assist. What a lot of folks don't realize, even cannabis activists throughout the United States and in multiple other countries, is that there is a global treaty, a treaty at the United Nations level for those countries who engage and are signatories to this treaty, known as the 1961 Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs, which controls cannabis and other controlled substances uh, throughout the planet. And and it really is the linchpin for uh, the various countries who are signatories to this treaty in terms of what they feel or want to rely upon in terms of uh, the liberation of cannabis and descheduling uh, and liberating of the plant and all of its parts. We're going to focus just on cannabis today, although, of course, uh, including hemp, although, of course, again, that treaty um, governs all controlled substances. And the two gentlemen that know the most most about the ins and outs of this very complex but absolutely critical portion of law are Kenzie and Michael. Not only does the Drug Enforcement Administration rely upon uh, our engagement, the United States obligations under this 1961 Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs, the European Commission and the European Union a week and a half ago relying upon its obligations under the 1961 Single Convention on Narcotics has made the announcement that they will only be accepted now novel food applications for synthetic CBD or cannabinoids, and they are halting or pausing novel food ap applications for non-synthetic, i.e. hemp-derived or cannabis-derived uh, CBD, again, citing this obligation under the 1961 Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs. It continues to be an obstacle, a major barrier, and if we can extract ourselves from this treaty and or convince the United Nations through the World Health Organization uh, to remove cannabis and its scheduling. We'll be able to liberate the plant throughout all of the nations um, as they one by one decide, okay, we no longer have these obligations. We want to liberate the plant in our individual countries. So without further ado, I would like for Michael and Kenzie again to uh, explain. And if you are a cannabis activist, we really want you to pay attention here. They're basically going to give you the playbook uh, for how to respond to some of these questions and how to speak intelligently on the these very complex issues. Michael Kravitz, would you please start for us, sir? Absolutely. Happy to. Thanks for that introduction, Joy. Um, I think before we get into kind of the nitty gritty of what we've been working on, uh, the over kind of an overview might be helpful of, of you know, why this is important. You talked a little bit about the, the fact that uh, United States and I think it's 185 other countries have signed into this uh, treaty system. Uh, but what exactly that means? And I, you know, I, I'm working on this from drug policy reform perspective. Of course, I've worked on human rights. Uh, I came in in the 90s, in the mid-1990s, presenting first in the UN in 1998. And since then, uh, you know, 
working inside this drug control system, which is mostly in Vienna, Austria, um, and very, very rarely sell the meetings back in New York at the headquarters of the UN. Um, and, and even though I, I don't you know, get involved in the regular UN stuff, um, I have really been exposed to the public quite a bit on these issues. And uh, I forget how many informational tables we did, but we definitely set records back at Virginia Tech. We really had ambitions to, to get out there and do info tables in places where you don't normally do them in public square, you know, where you have uh, a, a town uh, festival and the whole town's closed off. We would have an informational table on cannabis out there, you know, and talking with the real public, you know. And uh, I, I can tell you that there's a lot of angst out there in our public. I, I think that the, about a lot of things today, of course, but but about treaties particularly. And I think that, you know, the, it, it came back to me so many times from so many different people that I can sort of summarize it as this, that most people on the street, rank and file cannabis consumers and activists uh, don't really think that treaties mean anything because they feel that our U.S. government dismisses treaties and don't doesn't think treaties mean anything and that's i think a very uh astute observation of an incalcitrant uh government that going back hundreds of years has not fulfilled its treaty obligations all true but you need to understand the sort of special nature uh, of of this treaty it's a um, completely optional thing it's not you know if you don't follow this treaty you don't get you know the armed blue hat soldiers that come and enforce the UN code or whatever. This isn't some imposed on the United States by the UN thing at all. In fact, it actually is quite the opposite. It, uh, some of our uh, listeners here will remember, you know, Harry Anslinger, uh, the first commissioner on drugs in the United States, anti-marijuana crusader that truth was no barrier to, uh, to try to, to explain cannabis's harms. And he was actually our champion at the United Nations pushing through this treaty in 1961. He was our ambassador at large uh, long after his Federal Bureau of Narcotics uh, stuff was over. And the reason why we have to deal with this treaty inside the United States is because of our U.S. law. And we'll get into that later, how that works. But it's just really important to understand that it's not the treaty per se. and It's not the United Nations per se. It's the U.S. It's the U.S. government and all these other governments that have written the treaty into their national drug laws. And a lot of the countries post-World War II wrote brand new constitutions, brand new systems of law in a lot of countries around the world. And uh, I, I haven't done an assessment of other countries around the world, but I know uh, the United States for sure wrote the 19, the new Controlled Substances Act. Harry Anslinger's law was the Marijuana Tax Act from 1937, you remember. It was found unconstitutional with Timothy Leary's case. And then uh, we passed the new uh, Controlled Substances Act in 1971 to implement the Drug Control Treaty. So I, I think that's a really key thing for people to understand and to, to move forward on any of this is to understand why we're talking about it. It isn't some arcane, abstract concept of United Nations, you know, one world order stuff. I, I respect those that work on that stuff. It's not in my wheelhouse. We're working on something really quite succinct, and it's a policy that was written in 61. Uh, it was updated in 71 and then updated again in 1988, together called the Drug Control System. Uh, the single convention on narcotic drugs was just the very first one in 61, but often the treaty is often you know, titled by that as well. Um, you, you got a kind of opening statement there, Kenzie? Um, yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, totally. Um, I, I think it's a good approach maybe to explain this convention. Um, the fact that the, it's been a tool for the US to impose basically a global prohibition, global and generalized prohibition on some drugs, uh, because alcohol and tobacco are not included in, in the convention, on some drugs that have been um, used mostly for uh, geopolitical purposes. Uh, it's interesting to, I think, to always frame back uh, what is this convention uh, and what is this drug control system. Just it's stated in the name. It's a drug control system and it's the 61 convention on narcotic drugs. Drug is a synonym of medicine. A drug is a medical product. So um, this treatise, this convention in the end is just a a sort of framework convention for the medical and pharmaceutical sector on some medicine that are potentially harmful. So when you take that into account and when you read the convention, you see that they are only talking about drugs, about medicine. They talk about medical and scientific use and that's what is regulated. But they never talk about, um, for instance, adult use. It's not, there is no mention of adult use or recreational use. And there is one mention of um, what we know as hemp, uh, what they call industrial cannabis. And the mention that is made of industrial cannabis is actually two mentions, one for the cultivation of cannabis and one for the actual cannabis product. Um, both times it says, if you use this product, if you cultivate this plant, or if you use this product for non-medical and non-scientific purposes, so if you don't use it as a drug, as a medicine, then it's called industrial, and it's exempt from the convention. So the convention just does not apply at all. Nothing of the convention applies. And that's really interesting to, to remember because even though it's really clearly explained in the treaty and in the convention, this is a treaty on medicine and the medical sector. Um, it's been used far beyond as a tool to sometimes even prohibit hemp, even though it's clearly said this convention does not regulate uh, hemp industrial uses, and it's all obviously always uh, always used as a, a tool or as an excuse to prohibit um, uh, personal adult use, even though, again, the convention does not really oblige any country to prohibit adult use. It's not really even talking about adult use. It's talking about abuse, abuse of medicines. So medicine that you take in an excessive amount, it's not, that's not what recreational use is to me. It's not abuse. It's a industrial product that is used by adults for their personal purposes that is not a medicine, uh, not a medicinal purpose and not a scientific purpose. So yeah, maybe it's a bit complex to explain, but in the end it's quite simple. The conventions are just um, treaties to regulate some medicine that can be, uh, that can provoke dependence and generate some harms. And it should have stayed like that. It should have been just a treaty that is here to um, regulate this medicine. Uh, there are provisions very clear that say this medicine are indispensable for the relief of pain and suffering, including cannabis. So the 61 convention uh, is saying that cannabis is uh, actually uh, an essential medicine for the relief of pain and suffering, and that it should be accessible and available globally. So the goal, if you just read the convention, the goal of the convention is to allow access to medical cannabis globally for everybody at any time. But it has been used by the US government and other countries as a tool to impose other policies, prohibition of adult use, restriction of on hemp, and sometimes even prohibition of medical use. So there is a difference between the text 
and what governments have pretended the text is. This, this sort of false reliance, as I say, an inflated reliance. Uh, for example, with the Drug Enforcement Administration here in the United States, in July of 2011, I imagine in response to GW Pharmaceuticals and other interests that came along in studying uh, and getting an investigational new drug application out there, even though we'd been engaged in this convention since 1961, the 1970 Controlled Substances Act comes along, uh, GW comes along um, to, again, do its research uh, and, and start to to create the drug Epidiolex. Uh, so 2011 comes along and the Drug Enforcement Administration creates this proposed rule that most of us didn't know anything about in July of 2011. In fact, it was only six public comments that were lodged that created uh, a drug code for what they called marijuana extract. All of a sudden saying, oh, hey, you know, we just discovered decades later, 50 years later, that all of a sudden, uh, we realized, whoops, the 1961 single convention on narcotics is is telling us we needed one drug code for like the cannabis plant itself. And then we needed this other drug code for extracts. And, and wouldn't you know, we have been supposed to be reporting every year to the United Nations using those separate codes for all of these 50 years. We've been supposed to doing that, but we haven't been doing that. And we just came upon and stumbled upon our obligation. So now, we're going to create a drug code for marijuana extract, and we're going to include all parts of the of the cannabis plant in it, if it's an extract. That happens in 2011. They don't do anything with it. They don't finalize it. They don't adopt it. They just start to sort of behave on it. And in 2012, we see that the first edits to the Form 225, the DEA Form 225, which was to import or export controlled substances, where all of a sudden cannabidiol is added to it in 2012, even though they've never finalized that rule. Now, again, we're moving along in the movement here in the United States, not even realizing most people um, that this 2011 proposed rule has come along. Well, 2014, what happens? A cosmic, seismic shift in cannabis policy occurs in the United States when the U.S. Congress makes the definition for industrial hemp for the first time in U.S. history, thereby separating it from its cousin uh, marijuana, as we would say for, for just common vernacular here, or adult uh, and sacramental and medical type uses of cannabis. And um, and it liberates all parts of the industrial hemp plant by saying any part of such plant. And as I often say, gentlemen, um, if you gave a flower or a cannabis plant to a four-year-old and you said, hey, four-year-old, here's a cannabis plant, you can play with any part of that plant. What part can't you play with? The four-year-old would say, well, I can play with the whole thing. And you'd say, you're absolutely right. You can play with any part of that plant. But if you gave that same cannabis plant or flower to a drug enforcement administration authority and said, hey, DEA, you can play with any part of that plant. What part of that plant can't you play with? They would say, well, clearly the flowering tops, the leaves and the resin. And you'd be like, wait a second. The four-year-old knows that any part needs any part. But when I say any part to you, you're telling me not the flowering tops, the leaves and the resin. So at that point, they move forward 
because now the 2014 Farm Bill comes along, the Congress is allowing under these agricultural pilot programs for farmers to grow the plant for any part. And of course, what's happening is hemp farmers are growing it for extract. That's where the infrastructure is for uh, the hemp plant at the current time. Uh, it's less expensive than the fiber processing and so on and so forth. So they move forward with extracting cannabinoids from the plant. Well, the next thing we know, in August of 2016, some two and a half years or so later after the Farm Bill is signed, we get this joint statement of principles that is issued by the DEA, supposedly in conjunction with the USDA and the FDA. But we know the DEA bullied both of those authorities into uh, engaging in this joint statement of principles, every pun intended on joint statement of principles. Um, so in any event, in that they say, hey, listen, we really appreciate you Congress, we're patting you on the head here that you created this, this definition for industrial hemp. And we appreciate kind of, you know, that you said any part, but we're telling you that what you really meant to say, Congress, what you really meant to say was any part except the flowering tops, the leaves and the resins. And so to make sure you are put back in your place and we can still control these non-intoxicating, world-changing, public health revolutionizing cannabinoids controlled into ourselves, we're going to go ahead and finalize five years after a proposed rule to create this drug code for marijuana extract, we're now going to go ahead and finalize it. And of course, the industry took them on in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, and, and the case was basically lost on a technicality saying, hey, you plaintiffs, had you lodged your public comment in the six-month period that you would have been allowed to lodge your public comment, which was basically between July and, frankly, September. It was a 90-day, three-month period. Um, then maybe you'd have some standing in this case. But what we, we were able to prove was that under the four corners of the 2014 Farm Bill, indeed, we got the three justices on, on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, to, to agree in this memorandum that they wrote. They wouldn't even call it an opinion. It was really a hot potato. They didn't really want to deal with it. It was complex for them. Um, they said, okay, under the four corners of the 2014 Farm Bill, it's true that though that is not subject to the Controlled Substances Act. And by the way, the only reason why we were able to get the court to acknowledge that small piece was because 30 federal legislators wrote an amicus brief on behalf of the industry and the plaintiffs saying, excuse me, DEA, we wrote the law so we can tell you what our legislative intent was. And when our when we wrote notwithstanding the Controlled Substances Act as the first words to Section 7606, uh, legitimacy of industrial hemp research within that farm bill, what we meant was not subject to the Controlled Substances Act. So thank God that they wrote that amicus brief and all of them signed it, these 30 folks, um, and that's what allowed that four corners. Now, but meanwhile, they move forward and finalize the bill. And then of course, the 2018, they finalized the, the marijuana extract rule, had to deal with that and all of its confusion and all of its conflation. And that's what I called the feds versus the feds for a few years. Um, because we got the Congress, the congressional branch fighting with the executive branch, the DEA, and then the industry has to bring it to the judicial branch to work it out. Meanwhile, the 2018 Farm Bill comes along, 
such a blessing. And the legislators, so that because apparently the DEA does not have enough intellectual wits about them, that they could not understand what any part meant. We now have, of course, the expanded definition of hemp in the U.S. as the two, from the 2018 Farm Bill. That includes derivatives, compounds, extracts, cannabinoids, isomers, salts of isomers, and so on um, and so forth. But it is, again, it's that false reliance on the, on the treaty. And it's the same thing that the European Union is doing right now and the European Commission is doing. And Kenzie and Michael, you've nailed it on the head. That was never the intent of the single convention on narcotics. Back to you guys. So I, I got, a, I think, a, a, the third part of the stool. Hopefully you can hold your thought, Kenzie. Um, the the um, DEA, Kenzie talked about the impact of the, what the DEA has done outside of the United States, using the war on drugs and the treaties as a basically a bludgeon to put a foot on the back of the neck, frankly, of countries that didn't obey, didn't toe the line in the war on drugs for decades, for decades. Um, inside the United States, it's been interesting to, you have to sort of parse out what the DEA says that you really need to do and what they're just lying about. So, uh, for example, they uh, overruled the judge back in 1988, the administrative law judge ruled that cannabis should be rescheduled. And the DEA came back and overruled them. And they went to appeals court, but the appeals court looked at whether the DEA had the authority to overrule its own judge. And part of that authority was looking into other factors. And the DEA at the time were talking about the children, you know, protecting the children. Keep it away from sick people so you can protect the children. That would have never really floated in public opinion then or now, but that was the DEA's line. So later, when they would say that the treaty is why we have to maintain cannabis in Schedule 1 or Schedule 2, it's kind of specious. I mean, it doesn't even follow their own line. But that's their line, that cannabis has to be in either Schedule 1 or Schedule 2 of uh, the U.S. law because of our treaty commitment. Um, another one that has come up has been whether it, it can be other farmers, other cultivators that can cultivate cannabis. In fact, we had a professor up in U University of Massachusetts, uh, Lyle Craker, uh, that was astonishingly uh, brilliant uh, botanist professor that wants to grow weed for us, right? Yeah. No, DEA won't let them do it. We have to only grow it in Mississippi in the university farm that we control completely. Um, we went all the way through court again, went all the way to the administrative law judge. Administrative law judge ruled that you should let Lyle Craker grow some cannabis. Your cannabis sucks. It doesn't, it's not sufficient for the patients, all that. And of, of course, as we already know, the DEA has the authority to overturn its own administrative law judge. But e each step of the way, they, they bring up the treaty the funny thing about that was they were actually conflicting with the State Department, who was you know, looking at, frankly, the, the obvious uh, implementation of the treaty elsewhere, like the Netherlands, where they've had a medical cannabis program for decades with an official program directorate that's signed up at the United Nations, doing the appropriate paperwork, having the right laws, putting it out through the pharmacy uh, for decades and, and you know, with no problem. Use that as a model? No. You know, so the DEA was very much off the line there. And, and this recent bout that we had with the rulemaking and everything uh, flowing, I think, a lot from Dr. Sisley's case and, and other pressure on the DEA uh, has actually 
made them toe the line. But it's important to understand that there are treaty obligations. There's a hidden part of the treaty that I won't talk about much elsewhere here, but it's good, worth mentioning that all the medicines that we use that are controlled all go through the paperwork goes through the offices over there in Vienna. It's the International Narcotics Control Board or INCB. And it's just a small board of like, uh, I think it's 13 members that actually control the paperwork for all the medicine on earth. And you have to, as a country, you put how much you think you're going to need next year and you file it with them. It's this whole process. So that is all part of this uh, drug control system that you know, we, uh, you know, work with and, and do stuff with all the time. Um, a lot of it really isn't that onerous. And as Kenzie said, it, it really just applies to, to medicine, uh, not to legitimate non-medical Indeed, uses. it's again the same thing. The convention talks about medicines. So it has a nomenclature of different kinds of medicines for each drugs. For opium, there is a, diff a specific nomenclature um, opium poppy, opium straw, morphine, etc. For cannabis, uh, there is a nomenclature, cannabis resin, cannabis extract and tinctures, so on and so forth. But again, this is just the nomenclature that the drug convention, so the pharmaceutical convention, adopts for drugs, for medicines. There is no reason we adopt and we extend this nomenclature for what is not a drug, so for hemp product. And there is even less reason to extend the status of control to uh, what is clearly exempt from the convention when it's used for industrial purposes. So even considering calling the same way um, uh, the different derivatives of, of hemp than we call the derivative of cannabis used for medicine is not really uh, accurate because it's, it's just uh, not in accordance with the convention and not in accordance with how I'm about to say how policy works generally. Often I use this example of um, chili pepper. Uh, it's capsicum anum, the plant, and um, it's a plant that you can grow on your in your garden, on your balcony. There is no specific regulation on how many uh, chili pepper you can grow, how much, uh, etc. You can grow it at home. You can grow it uh, as a farmer uh, for food. Um, and you have specific regulation applying to your uh, cultivation of, of uh, chili pepper for food for the agroalimentary sector. Mm, you can grow it for other non-food industrial purposes. We do we make cosmetics with uh, capsaicin, the active compound of, of chili pepper. You can grow it for making um, an ingredient for cosmetics. Other rules apply. And finally, you can grow it for medicine. Uh, chili pepper as such is used as a herbal medicine and is also used, uh, capsaicin is also used as a actual um, uh, active pharmaceutical compound. Both are, I think, in the U.S., uh, U.S. pharmacopeia, and if you grow them for that purpose, you have different, more strict uh, rules that apply, and it's totally normal. And you have also a different way of naming of naming the products that that come out of your harvest. If you are going to grow it for food, for cosmetics, or for medicine, and that's the way uh, life is working all the time. I don't see why for cannabis it would not be the same. It's clearly the same because it, it we know, I, I, as a product, as a plant, it does produce uh, products that are very different in their pharmacology, in the way we use it, 
you can make clothes. I'm not going to have any sort of um, comparison between clothes, food, uh, you know, uh, concrete, uh, medicine. It's just different products, so you should apply different legislation. That's just common sense, and that's also what the actual 61 Convention says. As long as you don't use it for medical or scientific purposes, we're not concerned. So there is just no way for all these uh, policy action, this crazy regulatory uh, action being justified as uh, being in compliance with the convention. Actually, they are violating the convention because they uh, overly restrict <laughs> what is not subject to the convention. And it's the same thing at the, at the European Union level when they say, um, CBD, natural CBD, so synthetic CBD uh, is a novel food, and natural CBD, even though it's chemically exactly the same molecule, uh, because it comes from the cannabis plant, it's a drug. No, a drug is a medicine. So if it comes from the cannabis plant and it's used in medicine, then it's a drug. Okay, but if it's used in food, then it's food, it's not a drug. It's just you know common sense, and it's again also the convention. So um, this decision to consider natural CBD as a narcotic drug when it's clearly a food product is just like considering a car is a plant. No, a car is a car. It's not a plant. I, I don't know. I mean, it just doesn't make sense, really. I, I don't even know how to explain it. So just I'd say to legislators and policymakers in the USA or in the European Union, just go read the convention, read the commentary of the convention. There is like a huge book that explains the convention more in depth. And it's really clear, they it, put it really clearly. As long as I grow cannabis, if I grow cannabis for making cannabis and cannabis resin for medicine, it's controlled. If I grow it for any other purpose, it's not controlled. And this is valid for cannabis, but for other drugs. And the commentary even gives the example of morphine, which is um, morphine. It's just morphine. You know what I mean? It is actually a drug when you use it as a medicine. But they give the example of morphine being used as a compound in um, you know, the chemical process of, of developing photographs, um, film. And so sometimes to obtain a specific kind of, of coloration or whatever, they used a bit of morphine as one of the reactives uh, as compound. It's, it's not used for medici medicinal purposes. And in that case, it's just not subject to the disposition of the convention. And it's clearly explained in the convention. So even morphine that can get you high, as long as you don't use it as a drug, it's just not subject to the convention. It's the same for, for a lot of other drugs that are actually used in industry. Some are used as painting elements in in the car industry and so on and so forth, and they are not subject to the convention. So why should cannabis be? It's just uh, nonsense. Listeners, as you can see or hear, there is a lot of complex and very important critical information being shared um, and disseminated by Michael and Kenzie. So we are going to uh, revisit tomorrow, come back together with these gentlemen, if they will be so kind as to have us here at Hemp Barons, and we'll get to part two uh, tomorrow, which will then air again next week. Michael and Kenzie, thank you so much for this part one uh, of re really informing and ringing the bell of the global need here, the linchpin in cannabis uh, prohibition. Thank you for all of the work that you do. And thank you so much for, for being with me today. And can I count on you for tomorrow, guys? Absolutely. Looking forward yep. to it. All the way from Barcelona, all the way from the mountains of Virginia. Thank you, gentlemen. And we'll talk with you tomorrow. All right. See you tomorrow.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, it's Justin Benton, host of the Miracle Plant Podcast, where we discuss this miracle plant that goes by so many names and how it's helping people in so many extraordinary ways. So if you love this plant and you want to hear a story that tugs on those heartstrings and learn more about this plant, then head on over to the Miracle Plant Podcast. You'll be glad you did.